I went to a marvelous party. Christopher, this is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine, you first, Eric. From the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California, it's The Dinner Party Show, the Internet's first live comedy variety show with your hosts, New York Times best-selling authors, Christopher Rice. Actually, there's a new study that confirms every other child you see on the street is a ghost. <laughs> and Eric Shaw Quinn. I don't want to talk too much, but... Okay, no, no, no. We're going to take up a collection for the stained glass window. Now we want the dirt. Featuring reports from their largely unqualified staff of special correspondents. Sex is like Christmas. It's the not knowing what you're going to get that makes it exciting. New York is a giant trash island infested by has-been theater queens. If we're really serious about cutting federal spending, the biggest waste of public funds I can think of is Congress. Two snaps for Jesus! The Dinner Party Show. Everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you live and for free through the dinnerpartyshow.com and our free mobile app. And now, direct from the kitchen by way of the Get out of my office. It's your hosts, Christopher and Eric. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And welcome to The Dinner Party Show, and welcome to our second edition of a very special episode called At The Table. Eric Shaw Quinn, do you have any final thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, you're really in a hurry to get out of here today, huh? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. It's At The Table, duh, actually. We've done this before. Once before, we've collected some of our best interviews from some of our most Fabulous guests, all of the guests here at the dinner party show, of course, fabulous. I know it wasn't all that easy to the pick. Fact that they've been on the dinner party show, yeah, it was not it that down. easy to narrow it down. But we have some of our our most recent guests include Dan Savage, who was here a few months ago, I believe. He was always here. controversial and a lot of fun. And he made Eric scream and I clutch makes his me pearls. Just scream and clutch my pearls. Love that about Dan. Okay, so he was here a few months ago. So we have some highlights from his appearance on the dinner party show. We also have a very funny story from Caprice Crane, who is a very funny writer. I really enjoyed meeting her. She has to come back soon. She apparently lives right around the neighborhood. She said she would come on the show whenever we wanted her to come on. We should have her on again soon. We should have her on right now. I'm actually kind of bored and want to go. I'm so sick of talking to you. I know. I'm so sick. Like, we talk on the phone, and then we have to come in here and do it for an audience. Like, Jesus Christ. Like my mother says, we just go on and on. Your mother is up to no good on my Facebook page again. Did you see what she posted the two of you up to on Facebook. I yeah. am currently working on a new afterword to um, the ebook edition of The Snow Garden, which is my second novel. I'm bringing it out as an ebook, and when I bring them out as ebooks, Excellent. I write these little 5,000 word afterwords about the experience of writing the book and publishing the book. So, in order to get myself in the mood, I was listening to some of the soundtrack. <laughs> when I called your mother, Jeannie Quinn, and said, <laughs> That's what I was saying. In order to get my, my mother is involved with getting in the mood for writing The Snow Garden. 
I uh, posted uh, one of the tracks that I listened to when I was first writing the book years ago. It was a song from the s- orchestral score for Snow Falling on Cedars, which is oh. a very pretty uh, meandering movie oh, that didn't about really... absolutely <laughs> nothing whatsoever, except for it does touch on some really the brutal topics of the bigotry of that era. Yeah, but... Exactly. But in a really, really, really slow way. So I posted one of the big, rousing orchestral pieces from the soundtrack, which yeah. I think is the music they play when they're doing the or taking all the characters to the Japanese internment camp in the movie. The point is that I listen to soundtracks like these when I have no associations with them, so I can be inspired to write. But anyway, this is too much backstory. I posted this oh song God. on Facebook. Was my mother in Snow <laughs> Falling on Cedars? Your mother was... I mean, she played multiple characters, <laughs> and she was so good you couldn't tell who she was playing. She does she Japanese. Was the commandant at the, uh, <laughs> the internment camp. <laughs> yes. So she posts in response to this big orchestral blah, 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 with choir in the background. That is so beautiful and relaxing. She is you really your mother, Eric Shawquin. She I have is to say. definitely my mom. She is. She absolutely is. Anyway, how did we get no off on that? No doubt about it. Well, I can't remember anymore. I think there's a movement afoot to have Jeannie Quinn be a guest on the dinner party show. Right after Caprice Crane. Right after Caprice Crane. So we have interviews with Caprice Crane and Dan Savage, as we already mentioned, but also Miss Coco Peru. I love Coco. Another person I'd love to have back at the dinner party show. Absolutely. She was wonderful and glamorous. Very glamorous. Very glamorous. Do you know that we were given the option of whether or not we wanted her to come as Coco or as not Coco? And I said, absolutely, Coco. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad. I didn't yeah. know that. But yeah, I I hadn't even thought of that. Absolutely. So, and then our headliner, we our should, huge we should have guest. come as both. We should have Coco come and then... <laughs> in one have show? Have Coco come. Have them both on. Have the Like in the first hour, he could be, um, you know, not Coco. And then in the second hour, he could be Coco. Coco okay. Yeah. That would be interesting. That would be very fun. I, I wonder how Coco different. Coco. How different. You'd even have Coco interview Coco. That would be really weird. But you fun. know what? We do plenty of weird stuff on the show. So. I think it's a pretty weird show. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, Coco actually did a series of really fabulous. Um, <laughs> I dropped my notes Eric on the floor just and the almost, thing. <laughs> almost leaned over about... while I was talking, he was talking to pick them up and, and then remembered that I was supposed to be speaking into the, the microphone. And the expression on his face was like eight-year-old child realizes I've just dropped my food down the front of my shirt. <laughs> it was priceless. I can't handle it. Christopher uh, apparently had a very sugary cereal this I didn't. Morning. Um, I didn't have oatmeal. Anyway, Coco has done... Oh, God, I hate oatmeal. Um... Coco has done a series of really great <laughs> it interviews. It hates you too, on, by the way. It they're all me. up on uh, uh, on uh, YouTube. They were conducted at the uh, Gay and Lesbian Center here. He interviewed Karen Black. He interviewed uh, Jane Fonda. They're really some good interviews. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Coco's a great interviewer, so I think Coco would be the, a great person to interview Coco. Okay, we'll just take some creative editing. But anyway, so, but our headliner for today's show, one of our biggest guests so far since we've started doing the Dinner Party Show, and I say this because she said such nice things to me about my book. Right? Patricia Cornwell. Which was really an amazing, it was a wonderful interview. It really was one of our best 
a very generous, really uh, mm-hmm. gracious guest. I really enjoyed. Not that the rest of our guests are these difficult hags. You come in here <laughs> like that. Anne Rice. I is swear like, to God, Jesus Christ! She brings her cat. She talks about porn the whole time. It's just like, oh yeah, my no, God! That's not none of that's true. And we've actually had. We've been very lucky. We've had, I think, one guest where we were like, mm, "Who shall remain nameless?" Where we were. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're coming back. Um, but that's about it. That's as bad as it's really gotten. And I think for an interview show, that's probably pretty good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, we'll never have Alec Mappa on the show again. That was just <laughs> a disaster. No, I'm kidding. It wasn't Alec. Yeah, we love Alec Mappa. We love Alec. Although, we didn't include Alec Mappa in our best of tonight, so he'll prob- we'll probably hear some shit oh about Oh, my God, right? We have one other guest. Oh, we don't want to forget our other guest, Chaz Bono. Right. I have to say, our interview with Chaz was probably one of the most serious that we've done, and it touched on some issues that we hadn't had another guest bring to the table, if you will, which is sort of transgender identity in politics. Chaz is our only transgender guest that we've ever had on the show, and in the segment that we include later, um, we talk about how he came to that discovery. So it's interesting. Yeah, it really was a great interview. And, and I've always been really, really crazy about Chaz. One of the things that's so interesting to me about the interview is while it's specifically talking about gender identity, it's really kind of a it's, it's universal themes. It's things that really apply to my own life about being comfortable with who I am, irrespective of how other people feel about that. Mm-hmm. I think that's something everybody right. could learn from. It's a, It was really, I, I love Chaz, would love to have Chaz on at any time just because I love Chaz, but it really was, it was a great interview and a really insightful look at something that I really hadn't given a lot of thought to that made me think a lot about my own life. Absolutely, but let's bring it back to me. And right. that's a perfect everybody drink. In. Everybody drink. It's time I've brought the conversation back to me once again because I'm a narcissist with a radio show. It's all about Christopher. That's what we're actually going to call the show, but it didn't test well. A narcissist with a radio show. It's Special appearance by Eric Sharquin. Oh, it's all about Christopher. It's all I about like Christopher. That. I like with that. Eric Sharquin. Excellent. So, <laughs> here is our interview with Patricia Cornwell talking about me. Christopher, on The Dinner Party Show. Start writing and don't take no for an answer. That's the advice our next guest has for aspiring writers and with over 26 New York Times bestsellers and 100 million copies of her book sold in over 36 languages. It is advice any young writer would do well to heed. Or old ones. Exactly, (laughs) all of us. Patricia Cornwell sold her first novel post-mortem while working as a computer analyst at the office of the chief medical examiner in Virginia. At her first book signing, I love this story, held during one of her lunch breaks, she didn't sell a single copy and fielded exactly one question. An elderly woman asked her where she could find the cookbooks. However, (laughs) post-mortem went on to win just about every prestigious award a crime novel can receive in the world, and today its its author is arguably one of the most influential and successful novelists in this country, if not the world at large. Her K-Square Peta novels have single-handedly invented the genre of forensic science-driven mysteries and introduced one of the most compelling and sophisticated female crime solvers in the history of American fiction. Her latest novel featuring K-Square Peta is called Dust, and it was released just this past month. Patricia Cornwell, welcome to the Dinner Party Show. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this. I have I do. love it. You guys have your own <laughs> salon for artists. Yeah, nobody else does. That's it. Well, we wanted to be the first. You got to be the first <clears throat> at so many other things. We wanted to try and be first at something. Well, it really brings back an era that's tragically lost. Of when Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, and these people all knew each other, right. and and they did have their salons because they they talked, they fought, they got drunk together, whatever you know. But you know, these days, 
I, I'm often asked, like, who do you know? And it's like, I don't really know yeah. hardly any authors. Or, right. You know, yeah. in Hollywood, you can know more people because things are collaborative, but or supposedly, right? But yeah. it's as it's, isolated so as this anywhere. Is, this, is, this is a great idea. One of the things we this. talked about when we were putting this together was part of the reason the Algonquin Roundtable was famous was because of who else was sitting at the table with them. They were a group of writers who wrote about each other and as a result became noted writers of the era. But yeah, I think the idea of a salon is. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I was come I, again. I met um, Pat Conroy at a mm. at a just a, oh. a cocktail party, and we were talking about the same thing mm-hmm. that we were joking that we were going to start a salon, you know, in Charleston where where he was at that time, and just because we don't get together very often and compare notes with each other. Like I, when I was reading, you know, Heaven Heaven's Rise, I wanted to ask you about your research, Chris. Mm-hmm. Like how much time did you spend? Did you actually go into Louisiana? Because it certainly yeah. feels like you were there. Oh, yeah, totally. And yeah. scary stuff. Is yeah. Patricia Cornwell asking me a question? I'm, I'm going to fanboy you. out. How cool is that? Christopher's <laughs> like, about I was, to I wanted to, you. No, I to ask you what you did because I, I was really impressed because I've spent some time down there right, too. Right, right, yeah. And that, that whole place is quite a character. It and is a character. And it's, it's a different scary. character post-Katrina, which was really what my research was about because I lived there for 15 years, but I moved away before the storm. Oh, see, I didn't know that. Yeah, and going back and finding out which neighborhoods had come back first and expanded more than, you know, greater than they had been before the storm because everybody was concentrated there and nowhere else in the wake of the storm. There were things like that that I learned and I just getting in a boat and going places. I mean, I wanted to ask you about your research. You're sort of the queen of research, but a lot of it seems location driven. Yeah, you but need I want to learn there. more about putting more horror. I like the horror. Do thing you, you do really? There. Oh shoot! Yeah, everybody spies that stuff. They love <laughs> it. You know, the supernatural and the and um and you know one thing you hit on in your book that is such an amazing psychological truth is that we all have a terrible fear of doing something awful. Right. And so the idea that someone would show you a video. Of you committing a crime that you didn't oh, know you committed. Just I mean, the I, most I, I was thinking I, horrifying. It, yeah. I, I said this would be. I, I'd rather be dead. Yeah. And yeah. so you really you pick something that was scary in a way that goes right to your soul. Yeah. Unless you're a really bad person who likes to do things. Unless you're a complete psychopath. But yeah, I think all fears really come down to a loss of control, right? Or a loss of the illusion of control that we have in some situations. I think the reason a lot of people have trouble getting on planes is because it really drives home their powerlessness in the face of of natural elements and scientific forces and things that are larger than us. And their complete inability to fly a plane. I know, right? Like, I can't fly a plane. (laughs) You may. You You can fly a helicopter. I I can fly a helicopter. I I don't know how to fly a plane. Yeah. And I say, unless you've got a headwind that's so strong that it needs to hover, I could help you there. But if it can't (laughs) hover, I can't do anything. But, and by the way, you did a good job uh, describing the the disgusting odors of decomposition. I want to give you credit for that also in your your new book. Thank you. Yes, it was. Good job, Christopher. Well, I learned from reading yours on that So we have a listener, Gary Swafford, a loyal listener of the show, says, what can you share about your upcoming update on Jack the Ripper? And I think it's worth noting that there has been that you have done a great deal of research for those of you, I don't know, who've been on Mars or something and didn't (laughs) know about it and already published a book establishing this this particular Sickert, this artist as... Yes, which has been highly controversial and I've been enormously picked on about it and a lot of people don't want to believe it. But I, after doing another 10 years of research, because the first version came out in 2002, and my revision, which I'm just finishing, will probably be out in early 2015, um, I am more certain than ever that this artist, Walter Sickert, 
was Jack the Ripper. But I can't, you know, I'll give you two things that are more galvanized since the first version. Uh-huh. One is that um, one of the biggest uh, refutations of my investigative theory about who Jack the Ripper was has been that Walter Sickert was in France when the Ripper crimes occurred, which was the summer, the one, when they began, because I know there were many more than five or six. That this That's a silliness in the theory, too. But when they began in the, fall, the summer fall of 1888, the, the, what, what's even on, if you look at um, the, the Tate Britain, mm-hmm. you know, their website, mm-hmm. where they have a lot of secret works in their museum, if you read his bio, it's, it even sort of pretty much implies that that I have been over, you know, my theory has been mm. basically debunked. Mm-hmm. Just, and, the, and the alibi is this whole bit about being in France. Yes, Sickert was in France some, but what their people have refused to look at is that there are music hall sketches where he would go sit in the music halls, which can't, you know, let out about one o'clock in the morning. They were like vaudeville variety shows, very bawdy, mm-hmm. um, decadent, a lot of alcohol, prostitutes there, very mm-hmm. sexualized children on stage, you name it, they did it. He would sit there and he would do sketches. This was one of his favorite things to do. His own music hall sketches, a number of them are dated, you know, like August, September, October, 1888, that place him in London. So he clearly was not in France the entire time when the Ripper crime started in August and continued all the and way through the end of the year. And oh, it's a boat ride. Oh, it was an easy steamer ride <laughs> um, Even across so, the English like, Channel. That's like saying, oh, well, I was in Orange County. I couldn't possibly have done something in Los right, Angeles. Right, absolutely. But my question is, why do you think it's important for the Tate to give the illusion that you've been debunked? What is, what's their skin in the game? I don't game? know. Is the it, art world over yeah. there has just been rabid about this. The more... And, you know, they, the longer this has been out there, the more they tend to gild the lily to try to show. I I'm find that he's a hugely important artist over there. Some of his art is really beautiful. Some of it is incredibly ugly. Mm-hmm. Some of his models, these, pe- these women he painted, look dead. And maybe there's a good reason for that. Mm-hmm. Some of it is extremely violent. But I've never said he wasn't a good artist. Right. Caravaggio is one of my favorite artists of all time, but he was a criminal and a murderer. Sherry Robinson has questions about Washington, D.C. She wants to know if you have any aspirations to seek elective office. We really could use an attractive, intelligent, thoughtful, and thought-provoking woman of your stature to address issues that your characters confront. Violence, syst- systematic social failures, and LGBT equality, to name a few. So, Well, the thing is, I have such a non-controversial, squeaky clean background. I'm such a great <laughs> For this. Right. Man, I can just see, all this free time. I would like to see me in a debate just for one minute trying to defend the laundry list out there. I know, right? So, no, I would. I that's not for me. I'm I'm always happy to uh, consult with, give advice, discuss the important things with some of those lovely people on Capitol Hill when they ask. Right. Um, uh, but no, I there's that that would not. Uh-uh. Yeah. No, I get I, it. I couldn't deal with. I it. get it. I just. I, think I'll it. try to help in other ways. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, and I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving, the dust clouds rolling, the voice coming chanting and the fog was lifting 
This land was made for you and me The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Good taste, gone bad. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. We were listening to... Special At the Table. Yeah, it's a thing. It's What is it? At the Table, Volume 2, The Revenge of the Best of Our Celebrity Interviews. This time it's personal. This time it's personal. (laughs) I love that everybody remembers that tagline because it's from possibly the least successful Jaws film of the franchise. Is that the only thing that's from? Jaws the Revenge. This time it's personal. The shark had taken everything personally in the previous movies. I remember. I just... So it followed Lorraine Gary to the Bahamas because she was I'm just married not to sure Sid that Sheinberg who ran Universal. Don't step on my Jaws the Revenge trivia. The shit's important. <sighs> so she went to the Bahamas to get away from you Amity Island. Oprah story? And, uh, I stopped here. telling Kathy Griffin's Oprah story two years ago or a year ago. Okay, so... <laughs> That was Patricia Cornwell answering the question as to whether or not she would ever run for political office. I think, yeah, I think that pretty well we've covered that. Yeah, she's not. That's covered. We don't have to bring that up again. Yeah, I think which one of us said it was like it would be like waking up every day to your bad book reviews. I think she said that. (laughs) Well, I think there are a lot of us who I I don't know. I kind of feel like it's a problem with politics. Obviously, we don't want people who are nefarious characters who don't criminals running for office. But I think that we've made, you have to be a saint Mm -hmm. to run for office. And I'm not sure saints are necessarily the people we want running the country. Was it you or was it Stephen King who said that in order to run for elected office now, you kind of have to be a sociopath. Like there's nobody else can handle it. Can they handle the process? It's me and a lot of people. I don't know if Stephen King has weighed in on the topic that it, that it, it is, the people that are running for office, that the way we've set it up are increasingly psychopaths because they, they there's no sense of consequence for their behavior. Right. The the sort of um, Anthony Weiner or mm. John Edwards, those kinds of people who could do the kinds of things that they're doing and completely disconnect and then go be the... You know, the holier-than-thou reformer firebrands that they are in. Do do we really think there were no consequences for Anthony Weiner, though? Or do we think that's what brought him down eventually? No, the, the, in his head. Mm. Like, in real life, there are actually consequences. John Edwards has, you know, been in federal court. Like, it's—they impeached President Clinton. I, you know, like, there are actual real-world consequences. It's The absence of consequences are in their, their heads. In their brain, right, okay. It, that's what makes them sociopaths or psychopaths. I see. Um, it, it's that that disconnection from the behavior. Yeah, I can just do it. Is it's not without morals, but it 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 regards it in a different way. That sort of sense of these rules don't apply to me. Right. Absolutely. Well, I don't think Patricia Cornwell believes herself to be capable of. I that. don't think she actually is a, she is a terrible person. I think she would person. be a good person, but I understand her sentiment. I think she would actually be a. A wise governor, but I think that I think she's right about what it would cost her personally to actually have to do it. (laughs) Absolutely. So our next interview was with a lovely and talented and beautiful and hilarious writer named Caprice Crane. So funny. And of course, as soon as she sat down, she is a babe. And you know what? I was kind of bummed that one of our guys who works on the show, who has a has a a liking of beautiful women, we shall say, wasn't here the week she was in the studio because yeah, I think he would have. Away. I think he uh, would have gotten in the trunk of her car and gone home with yeah, her. Yeah, which might have been terrifying for us, but maybe just as well. <laughs> that that actually sounds horrible. It does sound horrible, it but like so the beginning of a 
one of your scary books. You know what? My books aren't okay. They are that scary. But yeah, anyway, they really are. That sounds totally like something that would happen in one of your books. Um, so the point here that I'm trying to make I is I think you should write a book about that. I did. I wrote a book about something. No, I'm not going to say because it's sort of spoilery now. It okay, did happen. Fine. Okay, whatever. Fine. Just stop talking. Stop making it about me, Eric. Why do you always make it about me? We need to talk about our guests, uh, you know, sometimes. Please. Or something you discovered in the refrigerator that has great global consequences for us all. <laughs> um, so what do I do? We get this beautiful, accomplished young this writer. spoiled to you. <laughs> we get this beautiful, accomplished young writer sitting in the chair at our table, and the first thing I ask her about is something embarrassing that she posted on Instagram. So basically, just Which so you know... Which we then talked about for the rest of the interview. Almost for the rest of the interview. So here it but is. But it is really a great story. It's a great story, and she posted it on Instagram. So Have we said who like, this is yet? Yeah, there's Caprice Crane. <laughs> just wanted to be sure. Caprice Crane. That we... Maybe we're just saying she and her no, she, the whole time. So, she, girl. In case we I've been calling her girl, G-U-R-L. Girl. All right, let's roll tape. She's written for the big and small screen, including stints on the reboots of Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place. And with over 150,000 followers, she's widely regarded as one of the funniest people on Twitter. And oh, by the way, she's also the offspring of television royalty Les Crane and Tina Louise. Wow. Her latest blazingly witty novel is Confessions of a Hater. It's a critically acclaimed exploration of high school cliques and mean girls. And which it sounds great. You can also buy it through our store at thedinnerpartyshow.com. Caprice Crane, welcome to the Dinner Party Show. Thanks, guys. Welcome to dinner. Thank, thank you for having me. We're so happy you could make it. Okay, we talked about all that stuff, but let's talk about the really important stuff. What happened with you and this goat on Instagram? Oh, my God, we're back to the goat. <laughs> I just need I'm to sorry, Caprice. Although I will say, when Caprice came in, I said, I promise we don't have any goats, and she threatened to storm out, so we sent <laughs> Billy out to get her a goat. The goat has become a thing. You know, it's I'm a, I'm a kind of obsessed with animals in in. In, in not the way of wanting them to pee on me. <laughs> Good. Um, I was like, uh-oh, this is really going to take a dark turn fast. I'm just a real animal lover, and I, I work a lot with but animal not rescues. Like not I like that. I love them, but right. not in that way. Yeah. Um, so occasionally friends will take me to or arrange for me to go to a, a sanctuary, a rescue, a big like the gentle barn or the farm sanctuary. And it's it's an they're in Acton, California. It's it's a drive, but for me it's like going to Disneyland. Right. And I just get so excited. I'm so happy to be with all these animals. And there I was meeting some goats and sheep, as it were. Um <laughs> And a turkey. I had, I had a, at the moment, I, I literally had a live turkey in my lap oh, who dear. I was petting. I was learning how to pet. You pet them under their wings. <gasps> and then this goat, who was a little jealous, oh. came and walked over and walked on top of me. So he was sort of crossed over my legs. And I thought, more the merrier. Here we are, hanging out. <laughs> And uh, my friend was taking a photo of me, and there was like there's there's a few shots leading up. There's like one with me in the thing, and one when the goat walks over, and then I'm smiling like, "Hey, it's me and a goat." And then at the exact moment when we real, then someone said, "He's peeing on you," and I looked down, and he captured the moment when this goat just decided to let loose. Oh my god! And there it was, and you, there I, it was captured for insurance. But I, who posted it? You made the choice. to I post chose it. to post and it. And that I takes cojones. Think that is. Really because it was so funny. I yes, mean, it's not, really you know, a glorious funny. moment, and it's certainly not an attractive photo of me, but it was so funny. Like, how many times is a goat going to be peeing on you? And especially <laughs> in the moment, like, when I'm posing and well, smiling, just the once, like, one hopes. yay, I'm so happy. And then the next moment, I'm like, 
oh my God, I'm being peed on. And later you found out the name of the ranch was actually Spanish for the jealous goat. <laughs> you met the jealous goat. That's my favorite part. The goat was jealous, so I'm going to pee on you. What yeah. else do you do when you're jealous? You know what? Or, I just what I do. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not like you can write a mean story or something. <laughs> exactly. You're a goat at the end of the day. Exactly. So, But this fits with what you do on Twitter. You're very... <laughs> I meant the posting. No, it doesn't. No, I meant the posting the photo. <laughs> Fits with what you do on social media because you're very, 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 very funny. You know? Oh, thank you. That's right. You're generous. Um, I and I'm and I'm I'm very uh, comfortable making fun of myself too. Right. Which what like which is that photo is an example. Right. So. Exactly. So I also have to say, and I think I've quoted you many times, sometimes with attribution and sometimes not. You How said my favorite you. thing. I know. I'm going to come clean at this moment. You said my favorite thing about writing that that I've ever heard said. We were speaking together in an event. It was that same event, Eric, where that woman bullied me out of reading from my own book. But it was a that the bitch. Assistance League of the San Fernando Valley. Remember, we were both. Yeah, I remember that. That's where we yeah, met. Yeah, that's where we met. And you got up and we, we were forced to speak and we couldn't read from our books. Remember, they're like, don't read because Glenda really hates it. And you said, I became a writer because I wanted to act, but I didn't want to act in front of other people. And I yes. thought, that's it. That is totally it. It's such a beautiful description. Yeah. I actually describe getting into the character for when I'm getting ready to write something. You have to get into the character of the people that you're writing. You do. You totally do. But you can do it in the privacy of your own home and be right. as insane as you want and not worry about people being there. So inevitable question, what do you think about the whole ebook revo revolution, I'm putting in air quotes, that we're in the midst of? Because when we express frustration about our writing and, the, and, and, and that sense that publishers aren't putting their muscle behind us, everyone says, well, self-publish and drop the price to $3 and see what happens, you know? I just think that's, I mean, I'm, I, to me, that still feels like a vanity thing, a vanity project. Like, if you can't get a publisher to publish your book, then you know, mm. maybe it's not so good. Mm. So I'm not, although I just had a conversation with Jane Green. I don't know if you know her. She's mm -mm. just a lovely, she's a, an author. Um, and she was telling me about another author named Alison Wynn Scott, who apparently is like winning the world by self-publishing. And she was a published, you know, major published novelist who right. now is doing it by herself. And apparently she's setting a great example for it. But for me, it just feels so like, I don't know. I don't well, we t I talk about, I shouldn't say we, I talk about a writer named Blake Crouch all the time on the show who was published traditionally by St. Martin's. He was a very dark, suspenseful thriller writer. His books were very dark and suspenseful. In person, he's very <laughs> lovely. But he, he, you know, felt this way. He got brought out. There was a lot of hype. His books didn't really sell. Um, and when the Kindle happened and when the ebook thing happened, he got steadily got the rights to his old books back. But he also started writing new material that he self-published. And it was shorter because that's sort of the thing, too, about these digital books is they want novella length stuff. And he's exploded in this way. He's got a TV show going on FX. We actually had the, the showrunner for the show, Chad Hodge, oh, that, was in here yeah. a few or actually Lonely a year ago. Pines. A wayward, wayward pine, not lonely pine. Wrong pine. Don't confuse it with the nursing home on the Golden Girls that they always <laughs> talk to. Um, shady pines, excuse shady me. Shady pines, yeah. So it, there are some possibilities opening up, but it's I get your frustration is what I'm trying to say. It's like out-of-town trials. It's yeah. the E.L. James example that I love. Like she started and she built the audience through ebook and through social, you know, through a much more sort of humble beginning. And then once she had the audience, then all the Fifty Shades of Grey books came out at, through a traditional publisher. And it was a giant sort of, I just think we're looking at a time when we're going to have to rethink publishing in general, the way that, because you're up, you're head to head with 
I don't know, pick one of the names of those video games that people are playing. Uh, Xbox. Grand Theft yeah. Auto or something. You right. write a novel, you are head-to-head with Grand Theft Auto and the Avengers and the Blacklist and Justin Bieber and how it, you know, it's hotly contest- contested for what my entertainment time is going to be spent on. And just you just put out, we printed a book and we put it on the shelf and... That's yeah. pretty much as much as they do in a lot of cases. And yeah, they've, it's they've pretty stiff competition. Up. Yeah, it's like they've just quit trying. Yeah. Well, no, this is this because this is the second conversation in a week where this has come up, I will think more about it. Mm-hmm. I, before, whereas before, I would never consider it. Yeah, we're not trying to sway it. No, we're not trying to sell you. But I, I would have scoffed at the idea. I mean, I remember when self publishing was, you had to pay to be self published by these outfits that were kind of scam artists. They would take your oh, money, totally. they would. They would say you were going to be in stores that they would never actually put your book in. But now it's really changing. It's really changing. But it is, there's an enormous pile of material out there, and you don't know how good it is because everyone's paying a cover designer to give them a good quality cover. And it's still, how do you get to people? How do you make part of the reason we started this show was because going on book tour is really going away because where do you go? The bookstores are disappearing. I mean, going on book tour, you have to go to the library or the festival or whatever because otherwise there's no place to even go anymore. How do you... You can't really be on Amazon. I don't know. Maybe they should start a a book signing channel or something on Amazon and you could sign the page (laughs) digitally for the people at home right the drone deliver it to the house and the drone (laughs) flies it to your house or something like I don't know I can't believe we haven't talked about the Amazon drones on this show that is so scary that's amazing I just see the the skies clouded with with you know Big flights of flocks, I guess it would be of, of drones. drones. Yeah. What would be the plural of drones? A, a pride of larks. <laughs> drone eye. A buzz of drones. John Favreau tweeted that an Amazon drone carried off his dog the other night. I that hate when that happens. Yeah, absolutely. That's super awkward. It was sleeping in the little plastic box when it came to take it back. So and someone we... else tweeted, I don't remember who it was, but it was like that awkward moment where the drone is waiting for a tip. <laughs> <laughs> A new live cast of The Dinner Party Show begins airing every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific at thedinnerpartyshow.com or through our free mobile app. And you can subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes, where all of our shows are available anytime you want to listen. Enjoy, and thanks for listening to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Show and our very special second installment of the best of our interview segments, which we are calling, what are we calling it, Eric Shaw Quinn? At the Table de. At the Table Part 2. At the Table Reloaded. What's on your shirt? Eric Shockwin has a bug on his shirt. What's happening in the studio? Oh, God. I think it was actually a pine needle. (laughs) I'm so glad. Eric, you were taking down Christmas decorations. You have to accept that there's going to be some stray debris that may not be an insect crawling on you. To come just trickling down inside the front of your shirt. Oh, no, that's gross. Yeah. I really do. That was one of those moments where I wish this was actually filmed. This was a video yeah, show. That was we, really... we could have used that on camera. That, that was... and you dropping your pages on the floor and then <laughs> going to lean over to get them before realizing you were going to go off your mic. Right. If you we kept were actually going to call it the sight gag show, but since nobody can see us, we <laughs> thought that would be cruel and unusual. So we were talking to Caprice about e-publishing, indie publishing as it's well, now called. and about the transition in publishing in general. 
Right, because I think she was the first guest that we had on that we talked to about it who was had some grave reservations about it, which is not to say she's alone. It's just that most of the time on this show, you and I are very much in favor of it, and we think there's a lot of potential there for writers and artists. Kind of why we're doing the show. Yeah, and we're doing some of it. I brought A Density of Souls out, indie style, if you will. I'm doing the same thing with my second book, uh, The Snow Garden. I was offered a contract for them as eBooks, and I didn't like the terms that I was offered, so I decided to do it on my own. So... You know, we'll see. But, uh, you know, I th- she said that thing that I think gets stuck in a lot of writers' heads where if a publisher doesn't decide to publish it, then then I'm afraid it's not good enough. Yeah, there is that. It's a really, it's going to be a while in coming, I think, in transit. And I think it's going to become a part of the mix. Like, right. I, like books like Fifty Shades of Grey were big hits as e-publishing that were then taken up by more traditional publishing. I I think it may become a feeder market for more traditional publishing. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think a lot of writers are bringing back works that have gone out of print or were passed on by publishers. Absolutely. But I think what it's also doing, and I mean this in the most complimentary way, even though this term I'm about to use is a little fraught, it is taking over the pulp magazines. You know, it's taking over... Uh, a market that had previously shrank for short stories and novella-length works that are about kind of writings of sensation, as they used to be called, thrillers, horror, uh, erotic romance. These sort of these sort of smaller uh, quick shots. The paperback world, I think, is go- is going to right. e-publishing. I-, I think that I've always felt like the books that I want to own, and I think people are going to. It- it's the books of record, the things I want. As keepsakes. Right. I, I want to buy them as hardbacks. I've even started buying books as hardbacks that I want that way and still reading them as e-publications because it's just easier. Right. You know, the headline in the publishing industry over this past holiday season was that it's the first new year in years that we're not panicked because there's been a dramatic slowdown in the sale of e-books. And I don't know how dramatic it is, first of all. And I also don't think it's going to mean that much if Barnes & Noble goes out of business, which is a very real possibility in the coming years, that it'll either go out of business or that its CEO will take it private and it will stop being a publicly traded company and they'll start to close locations. With with one major print book distributor left, I don't think we can look to a slowdown in anything over at Amazon as being you know, critical to the industry, particularly when you consider that that print distributor or that print retailer, I should say, is in such constant grave financial danger. So, you know, there are a lot of things that we need to keep tabs on if we want to sort of be players in this industry or participants, I should say. And I think people make too much of little. We're at that point where we're making too much of little swings in 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 either direction. Well, I think it's what people do for a living, and I think it's a big change in an industry. And I I can't think that that's. You know, that wouldn't be the reaction in any industry that was going through this kind of seismic change. Right, absolutely. In the way that things are created and distributed. Anyway, we will see. And as Caprice pointed out, you know, there are a variety of opinions on this topic. And I think they're all valid. I I think everybody's dealing with this in their own way. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see how things work out. So our next interview was probably one of our more serious interviews. We had Chaz Bono on the show, and Chaz was our first transgendered guest and our first guest to speak to uh, transgender identity and transgender politics and what that means. And in the in the clip that we're including today, uh, I asked Chaz when he knew 
you know, because a lot of, of gay people that I know, they point to a moment or they point to uh, a memory. And I was curious to know if that exists for transgender people, if that's relevant to their experience, you know? Yeah, it is. It was very insightful in, in terms of being able to just ask. I, I And I really appreciate that with Chaz. Chaz said, you know, ask anything. Nothing was really off the table. So right. it was very sort of because we're generous with our guests when they come on it's a dinner party so we say exactly anything you don't want to talk about you know and we've known Chaz personally for yeah. years and, and we knew Chaz before he transitioned but as Chaz well. was very uh, very much open about whatever and so we were able to sort of talk about because I don't know like I honestly don't know that much about it yeah you know I've seen Trans America and uh that's about it you know right. the very limited sort of understanding and and, I, and it was great to sort of get insight. And as I said earlier in the show, it was it was interesting to me that how much of what it was applied to my own life. Even right. though I'm not a transgendered person, it's still about my own identity and being comfortable with who I am. And that's, I guess, in a really sort of oversimplified way, what the transgender issue is about anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, being comfortable not only with who you are, but allowing other people to, you know, feel however they want to and still doing what is best for you. Right, right, absolutely. So here it is. Here's our interview with Chaz Bono. Was it something you wanted to be private or, or was it important to you to um, be public about it? Well, no, I think that I, if I had had my choice, I, I would have liked to have done it privately. And I think if I had that, you know, opportunity I would have done it many years earlier mm. um, you know that was the thing that really took a long time to get over and you know I mean I I had realized that I was transgender almost 10 years before I transitioned Wow! and so you know there was getting past all the kind of usual issues that I think you know most transgender people go through of you know, worrying about their family and friends rejecting them and job and that kind of stuff. But, you know, for me, there was that added thing of, you know, everybody knowing. And right. um, and that one really took a long time to mm -hmm. get comfortable with. And um, so, yeah, I, I probably would have done it at least a good five years, you know, earlier. Wow. Yeah, one of the things that you've said that that has touched me the deepest was you had to come to a place where your comfort came first rather than worrying about the comfort of everybody else with who yeah, you were. definitely. Uh, that has been so moving to see as you have become more comfortable with you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I was, I, I, and I didn't realize this, but I mean, I was a really a people pleaser all mm -hmm. my life. And I had to get to a place where I could work on that issue and... Um, and, you know, luckily I had a chance to do that, um, just kind of coincidentally when I needed to and leading into my transition. And so, um, you know, I finally realized and had this kind of, you know, moment of clarity of like, it's not my responsibility to mm -hmm. make sure that everybody else is okay with this. Right. You know? right. right. Yeah. In and, the end. And yeah. And once I realized that, then it was, you know, yeah, I was good to go. Yeah, I think that's true of all of us, whatever our decisions Right, whatever life, it is, That's exactly. what has so right. moved me about you saying that, was like, wow, that's true for everybody. For how much, how many decisions am I making in my life about other people being comfortable rather than, than me, rather yeah. than starting with me? And then 
it multiplies it to the 10th power for you. You literally grew up in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Like you've literally grown up on in public your whole life. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. And I mean, I think then, you know, once I, I was really comfortable with it um, and ready to do it and really feeling like, okay, this is absolutely, you know, the right thing to do and this is the time to do it, then it it it's then you know that kind of hit me and it started to feel like almost meant to be because I, I i was in a unique position where people you know have known me all my life publicly truly and you know have a certain amount of comfort with me and you know that put me in a situation to reach people that others you know might not be able to so suddenly it kind of felt like okay this is this was what was supposed to happen. And you've handled it with such grace. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you, I think I know I am, and I know a lot of other gays and lesbians look for that moment where they knew. Was there a moment for you as a transgender person where you knew? Or was it um, a, It a, was a little bit of a slower process, but there was, there was definitely a moment where I really, where I started to think about it. Like, and that was... Um, and, you know, when I look at my whole life now, it's amazing that I didn't know so much earlier. But it was really, you know, I think because there just wasn't any type of trans representation mm-hmm. going on when None. I was growing up. And yeah. so, you know, the thing that I did know about was gay and lesbian people. And the thing that I realized, you know, at puberty was that I was attracted to women. So I just chalked it all up to that. Right. But when I was, I guess, about 30 or 31 I was at a, a you know party at and there was a, a lot of lesbians it, you know it was basically a large lesbian barbecue and I remember not that they were barbecuing lesbians no they weren't barbecuing <laughs> lesbians good just wanted just, to clear that you know, up one of those lesbian barbecues that you know yeah, that they I know. have I've been and, right. yeah, um, I've been as well I've been the token gay man right them. yeah and so and you know I think all of the major you know, lesbian iconic groups were represented. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had your kind of your sporty, your lipstick, your kind of crunchy granola. Uh-huh. Uh, and I remember kind of sitting, sitting back and listening in on different conversations of people that day. And I, and I think that I used to do that a lot because I never felt very comfortable in participating before. And uh, and it struck me that day that all of these women kind of regardless of how they uh, presented themselves all had a strong female identity and felt very comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I realized that that day that, you know, that wasn't me ever. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first time I started to think that. You know, I think I, I when I was very young um, – I just assumed that there were other les- lesbians, in quotes, I'm doing the finger quotes. Um, <laughs> for those of you at home. I do that all the yes. time on the show. I do air quotes um, and realize no one's seeing yeah. them. So I assumed that there were other lesbians who felt the same way that I did, which was that I felt like a man. I wished that I was a man, but I wasn't, so I'd make the best out of it. Mm-hmm. And that day... I realized that that wasn't the definition of any type of lesbian. No. Yeah. And so but how that often? was what 
got me yeah. to start think, really How thinking about it. How often does that get swept under the rug? How often does a legitimately transgender person just get told, you're feeling this way because you are actually homosexual or lesbian? I think a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot, and I think that's why we're starting to see you know, the number of trans people coming out and transitioning is growing and growing and growing. And I don't right. think that's really, you know, surprising because the more um, trans people are, are out there and the more information there is about us and the more we're out in the media right. and the more, you know, it's, you know, it's something that people can see. Um, and it's why your yeah. contribution has been so significant because, as you said... You didn't. You weren't presented with other options. Yeah, exactly. Like, so, oh, well, there's Chaz. I know Chaz. Chaz looks very happy and comfortable. Oh, maybe right. that's for me. Like, yeah. So just I th- being able to see other examples in the world. Right. And I think that we're just, you know, we're just starting to see that more and more. Party Show and our second installment in our special collection of interview highlights, which we're calling, what are we calling it, Eric Shawquin? Actually, this was your title, Christopher. At the Table 2. Right? At the Table Reloaded. Apparently, that's what we're calling it. And you were listening to our interview with Chaz Bono, which was fascinating because while we were talking about, as you said earlier, Eric Jacquin, when we introed the segment, while we were talking about transgender politics and identity, we ended up talking about issues of self-acceptance that are really universal. And I love the term crunchy granola. I thought that was... I <laughs> Have I, you never heard that I before? I hadn't heard that applied in that way before. I've okay. I guess in terms of breakfast cereal, but not in terms of lesbians. Oh, like, not a sort of hippy dippy Birkenstocks. I, I, it, I completely saw the woman. I mean, there was it was an instant like, okay, that's a perfect description. I totally know what you're talking about. I, no, it's basically been, um, you know, butch and lipstick has been my, yeah, um, sort of my realm, my old fashioned view. But crunchy granola was definitely a seismic group. Um, did you have an experience like I described when we were talking to Chaz where people assumed because of outwardly homosexual or effeminate characteristics in your younger life that you were sort of called a girl or accused of being a girl or mistaken for a girl, which happened to me a great deal when I was a little kid in San Francisco? Mm, I guess maybe when I was very young, I had this voice really early on. <laughs> And so people on the phone mistook me for my grandmother when I was young. That that's kind of as close as I got. How to young? That sort of like eight. Eight. Yeah, huh? I had this voice from the time that I was 
But I can remember back in Natchitoches, people calling the house and, Leola, no, it isn't. <laughs> and you can call back. Click. <laughs> What did you say to me once that when you were eight years old, you had that voice and all you really wanted to do was sit around and drink coffee and talk about things? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, they did this thing with me when I was very young of, you know, okay, if you want a cigarette, you can have it, but you have to smoke the whole thing, thinking it would make me sick. And I loved it. I wanted another one. They were like, get out, get out. I want to sit around, smoke cigarettes, drink French roast coffee and talk about existentialism. That, that was what I wanted to do from pretty much the gate. The most terrifying eight-year-old. The most terrifying. It must have been so disturbing to I be bet. around me when I was a child. Maybe in that environment, if you'd been out with us in the Bay Area, you would have fit in rather well, I think. Maybe, but it would have been with, you know, 40-year-old people. Yeah, absolutely. There were plenty of those. Plenty yeah. of those. Um, you know, one of the other interesting um things we talked about with Chaz, which if you would like to hear the entire interview, the entire episode is available as a podcast in our show archive at the Dinner Party Show. Yes, as are all of these interviews. All of our interviews are available in full and for free in our show archive and on iTunes and on Stitcher and on TuneIn, which we keep forgetting to mention, but we're on those uh, streaming services as well now. But later in that interview, we talked about the use of the word tranny, which Ugh. was interesting because Chaz said he is very close to RuPaul and the people who make RuPaul's Drag Race, and he has said to them, please, you guys have got to stop using that word. And while we didn't talk about that with our next guest, we did talk about some issues related to drag identity and to RuPaul's Drag Race that sort of kind of all tie together. Our next guest is Miss Coco Peru. It's almost like we planned it. It's almost like we scripted the whole special, Eric Shaw Quinn. While you were taking down all those Christmas decorations, I was in here with my notepad and pen. Covered with pine needles. Looking for themes, right? theme hunting. Yeah, no, I loved having Coco in, but yeah, it was nice talking about you know the showbiz side of it, but it was also nice talking about the personal choices, the personal decision, the side of. I really, as you'll hear in this next segment, I really threw Coco. Like, you may actually, I want to warn you, you may think that your signal has gone out or your iPod or iPod has jammed, uh, but it's not. Like, Coco needed maybe a good 15 seconds to to answer the question that I asked her, which I didn't really intend to be that shocking, but, you know, you'll you'll see. You'll hear in the next segment. I'm Every not going to say anything again. else. So. All right, then. So, wait for the big surprise. Here she is, Miss Coco Peru. We're here in the studio with the lovely Miss Coco Peru. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I was trying to get you to say that. <laughs> and if you go to your website, that's the greeting. Hello. You, hello. Yes. Yeah, right. Wonderful. We were talking in the previous segment about celebrating all forms of drag. Mm-hmm. Bad drag, good drag. Is oh, there God. bad drag? Drag with a beard. I just love drag yeah, with a beard. Yeah, that's what it's I mean. So like cracks the me Sisters up. of Perpetual Indulgence oh my God, with the full-on beards and whatnot. Yeah. 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 I love that. So. Is it a form of rebellion? Or is that too glib? I guess on some level it's a form of rebellion, but for me it wasn't about rebellion. For me it was about uh, healing Mm -hmm. and embracing all that I had been taught to reject about myself growing up. Right, right. Even throughout college I went to school for theater and was told to butch up. Right. I was too effeminate. Right. And constantly negative feedback about that stuff. So that I was just always full of shame. Right. And as a young kid, up and through puberty, always mistaken for a girl, Mm. which is part of my new show. Which is like, I could wear boy clothes, have a boy haircut, and they'd still go, What's your daughter's name? You know, in front of my parents. Oh, God. So, um, (laughs) 
for that <laughs> reason, you were beautiful. Yeah, exactly. But drag for me was a way to uh, embrace, embrace that, right? And and to sort of just, huh. I guess, in the rebellious way, say, "Fuck you! This is right. who yeah, I am. This, this is, is who right. I enjoy to be. I want to express myself." I remember having to go through this cosmetic overhaul when we left uh, San Francisco, where I was born, and we moved to the Deep South. And I had this long hair, and I, like you, I was routinely mistaken for a girl. And I would wear long, baggy sweaters with Disney characters on them. And I would just, because I was coming from this really liberal, hippie environment. And then I remember how not okay that was when we got to New Orleans, and I had to get the haircut and the rat tail and the clothes. I, I, I was dressed in what I wear today, you know, polo shirt. Right. Jeans, that's it. The and in uniform. a way, that was drag. Yeah. I mean, right. that was, was you having totally. to create yeah. a new character. And and, and for me, uh, putting on the clothes when I first started taught me a wonderful lesson about life in general that crosses gender borders and, and you know, everything that I think every human being should understand is that a lot of people fall into role-playing here. Right. Of uh, This is my life. I'm, I'm, I'm a father. I'm a mother. I'm this. I'm that. And you have all these roles. And they forget that you're actually here to create who you want to be. Right. And that is such a, like anything's possible. Right. And drag taught me that again, that I am, I am the one that has to create the life that I want and who I want to be and how I want people to perceive me when I walk in the room. Right. And and it, it was a yeah. wonderful liberating experience. So right. in that way, it it's if that's rebellious, then I guess it is. Well, but it's revolutionary. It, I mean, for me, it was just like, it, and I mean it in the most positive. Yeah, way, yeah, no, rebellion, I do. So you know, like, yeah, it was a rebellion, but on another level, it was just really. Um, it, it, it was it was for me to heal. It was, it was celebration. Yeah. Celebration. Yeah, yeah, celebration. yeah, that's a lovely yeah. way. Because to it's 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 always been inspiring to watch the way drag performances bring gay and straight audiences together. Yeah. And I think it's because of what you're describing. It is that that inspirational message of self creation and yeah. creating what is authentic to yourself. And I did a, I did this thing the other night where I was uh, on a panel with this very conservative right wing guy. Oh yeah, who yeah, was it? I don't. Oh, I hit you. You wiped his name. Mike, something magic. Oh, magic Mike. (laughs) I don't remember. I'm blanking. I'm I'm blanking. But anyway, he actually liked me a lot because um, rather than just being like, you know, fuck you, you're a right wing asshole, I listened to what he had to say and we had a conversation. And I think that's a lot about drag too, is that we're, we're just more like, you know, everyone come to the party and, but. And I think that's what's missing in today's uh, dialogue with politics and whatnot is that mm-hmm. people are have chosen their sides, right? And you know, and I'm guilty okay. of it too sometimes. But I think it, it's so much more effective to really just um, and everybody gets to have the opinion that they want. Yeah, to have. and I the page actually wants to know about your opinion about RuPaul's of, Drag Race. Oh, what do you think of RuPaul's Drag Race? You know. I know RuPaul, and she is lovely so and so fabulous and so funny. And I, I watched the show simply to hear her cackle. <laughs> I mean, I could just listen to RuPaul laugh, and I'm just a happy person. So I get, for entertainment reasons, why that show is important. And I also travel around the country doing my own show. And recently I did one in, uh, in Kentucky, and I met – it was a benefit for young young people there that – and and I met like eleven year olds and twelve year olds that are openly gay that have this support group, and of course they love RuPaul's Drag Race. So for that oh, reason, I'm wonderful. happy it's on TV. Yeah. But the flip side of that is that I don't think it really um, gives drag queens who are on there the opportunity to create and show who they really are. Mm-hmm. It is a reality show, mm-hmm. so it's completely we're doing not air real. quotes here, right? Yeah, because there's nothing real about exactly. reality. Exactly. And mm-hmm. then the other bad thing. 
that I've talked about in my show is that um, when I created Coca Peru in New York City, there was no internet even back then. Right. I mean, you had to create something so special to get noticed and and artistic, and you had to be out there and really create, and you had to promote yourself. You had to learn how to promote yourself. And nowadays, mm-hmm. you can go on RuPaul's Drag Race, and then they're willing to pay you 10000 bucks to show at a club and lip-sync three songs. Right, right. And it makes me feel like, exactly. what have I done with my Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You've been a big star. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Tired of dining alone? Enjoy the dinner party show with friends. Like us on Facebook and become one of our party people. Then, during our live shows on Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, you can join the conversation and post questions for Christopher, Eric, and their guests. During the week, drop in for tasty side dishes, show updates, and fun with the other party people. The Dinner Party Show. You are the life of our party. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to the Dinner Party Show's special edition of At the Table, a collection of our best interview segments from the past few months. Volume two. A volume two, At the Table Reloaded, if you will. So that was our interview with Miss Coco Peru. So I, I, you, I kind of threw her, right? Well, I, you know, one of the things that was great about the interview was that Coco was very thoughtful about the replies. I, I think it comes from her own skills as being a really good interviewer. Right, absolutely. And it was, as as she was saying in that segment, that she had an, an interesting experience debating somebody who was rather radically right-wing because she listened to him as opposed to shouting him down. And she said that that's kind of what drag is about. Drag is sort of come as you are and everybody gets to get gets kind of a say. Right. You'll probably get maybe a little swatted down with sarcasm along the way. But but like it's not, you know, it's not like an uptight cocktail party. And so it does actually ironically allow room for different ideas to play around with each other, which yeah. I thought was an and interesting thought. I think that it is. I think uh, you could make a good case for it being a form of rebellion in its own way. Well, ultimately, I think that's what what she talked about, is that there are so many different types of drag now. And I think that is also in the full interview, if you want to go download it from our show archive, that that um, she said, had some critical things to say about RuPaul's Drag Race and that it doesn't necessarily allow performers to... Uh, progress in an organic way because it's a game show where they're given rules and challenges and objectives. Yeah, so why would it? Exactly. So it's interesting. But I I thought again, and sort of getting back to what we talked about earlier in the show with Caprice Crane, the effect of the internet on the art of drag. You know that 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 Coco kind of had the opposite attitude that that I do, which is that um, you used to have to really say something to be noticed before the internet. I kind of think. You have to now because there's so many people promoting themselves on the internet that you're sort of part of an even bigger pile. Whereas I think Coco's attitude was that the internet exposes people so much more quickly and easily, but it's exposing you alongside thousands right, of other it's people. It's a very noisy marketplace. So getting noticed in that context, I guess, is more challenging. But I think that it also creates a feeling of greater diversity. I think mm. it seems less alien to people, the diversity of who we all are. I think Mm -hmm. people are less shocked by encountering people who are different than themselves. If you grew up in a world that where you stayed within 50 miles of your small town your whole life, 
things would seem pretty shocking pretty easily. But right. with the internet, with the interconnectivity of all of us, it it sort of takes that away. Right, absolutely. I kind of love that. Absolutely. Well, speaking of the internet, our next guest is Dan Savage. He's the queen of the internet. The queen of the internet and probably his uh, It Gets Better campaign harnessed social media in the most effective and widespread way I've seen in the past few years. But he talks about this as well. He talks about what life is like now for the gay kids who were left behind by, you know, all the gay men who were like, fuck this small town. I'm getting out of here. That, you know, and he talks some about how the It Gets Better campaign is sort of a response to how it actually got worse for those kids because there was no staying in for them. I think because of what you just referenced with the Internet, people are more aware of different types of people now, you know? More aware, so he had a lot to say, and, and it was. I felt I particularly liked that discussion because I had my own feelings at the time of like, you don't want to tell kids that the shot won't hurt and then it hurts, right? You know, like it does get better because I've gotten better at coping with it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get better because people actually begin to act better, you right? Know, reality jerks from. Um, basic cable feel perfectly free to say horrible things about Absolutely. me even now and disguise it as religion right and mm-hmm. pretend that it is in some way a, an expression of their religion even though they don't obey most of the rules that there are in that stupid book that they yeah, claim absolutely. is their rule book for their religion they just I'm, ju- I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb them. I think you're talking about Phil Robinson from Duck Dynasty and I think one of the interesting Who? things um, right exactly he was caught on tape uh, advocating marrying 15-year-old girls. I don't know if you saw this. And Dan Savage doesn't say in this interview, because this happened after he appeared on our show, Dan Savage said, if I was advocating this, I would immediately be branded a pedophile and completely chased off of social media and out of any other form of media. But this supposedly religious man says this, maybe as a joke, maybe not. We don't know the context, really. It's a video of a sermon he was giving inside of a, of a church So it's of some a lovely sort. thought. So it's, it's a lovely thought. Get that, to them early, because yeah. the older ones will take your money. will be gold diggers, yeah. right. Yeah. Anyway, so Dan Savage has a lot to say about all sorts of things, and Eric Sharquin has a lot to say back in this interview segment <laughs> here on the Great Dinner Party guest. Show. Absolutely, he was wonderful, and here he is. Mr. Dan Savage. Other thing, too, and we were talking about this a little bit during our, our one of our breaks here, is um, to what extent does social media really elevate isolated fringe figures? You know, I, I have this sense with it. When I log onto my Facebook feed, I would think, I don't know what random representative, or I wouldn't know what random representative in, I don't know, pick a state, mm-hmm. pick a flyover state, even though that's a pejorative term, um, would be saying hatefully about gay people if some, if eight of my Facebook friends weren't reposting it every five minutes. At what point do we say, okay, this is not, this is a low-hanging fruit, if you will. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Well, <laughs> you know, I actually think it's important for us to keep track of that shit. You know, one of the things that I think was going on with the LGBT kind of youth suicide despair crisis was all of us who'd fled and gotten out didn't realize that it was kind of getting worse for them in the right. flyover countries. You know, it used to be, you know, 50 years ago, you talk to gay men in their 80s and they'll say, when I was a teenager, I thought I was the only one in the world. Um, I'd never heard of gay people. Right. But neither had his peers at the time. Mm-hmm. Now everybody knows about gay people. So that gay guy who, when he was 15, you know, 50 years ago, could fly under the radar in his little town, the queer kid in that little town now cannot fly under the radar mm. uh, and is being bullied and picked on. And that anti-gay hate that is sloshing around out there that the Family Research Council and the American Family Association has just pumped into the culture, the people who are really suffering, not us like out and over it and done with queers living in the big city like they can't get us Mm -hmm. what they're getting are the kids who are trapped in those communities still who haven't been able to 
get out yet. Right. And they're suffering almost uh, more extreme levels of bullying uh, and, uh, you know, name calling than we did right. when we were kids, guys my age, when we were kids, because people didn't think every weird kid was a fag because most of my kids when I was in high school, middle school didn't know what a fag was. Wow. Plus, they're also hearing Rick Santorum, whoever, out of context. There's no buffer for them. That's the thing that upsets me the most about people like that is that the... I don't give a shit anymore what Rick Santorum says, but the kids are hearing that. Like, what I always want to say to people, what about the children? I always want to say, what if your kids are gay? Right. And the kids, it's not so much that even the gay kids hearing it is the problem. Straight kids watch their parents in shitty flyover states. Um, <laughs> they watch their parents beat up gay people at the ballot box and beat right. up gay people with their right. checkbooks. They go right. to church on Sunday, some shitty mega church hellhole in the suburbs. The pastor's beating up gay people from the pulpit. And straight kids are lapping all this up, and they're being told that gay people are an attack on the family, an attack on their family. And then, you know, mom and dad go to the ballot box and vote against gay people's rights. Right. But that kid goes to school, and there's the queer kid. Right. And he's watching all the adults in his life beat the shit out of the queers, and he feels that he has that same license. Only he's right. going to do it with his fists yeah. and in the hallway at the school to an actual living, breathing, vulnerable human being. A child. As opposed to the abstractions that the pastor and the mom and dad are attacking. Yeah. They don't know any gay people, but their children know gay people. Right. Because at every high school, middle school in this country, there are gay kids. Right. Absolutely. And lesbian kids and bi kids and trans kids. Yeah. How important, you know, do you think for too long we just sent the message of get out when you can? I mean, was that partially what It Gets Better was about? It was about trying to actually make a better world for them where they were right now? You know, the project can't end bullying, and the project can't improve the lot of kids who are trapped. And we have to remember that there are some kids who are in such dire circumstances, they can make no move. They can just go underground right. and wait yeah. and Rough flee. Yeah, it out. Yeah, and those are the kids we, you know, our hearts kind of ache for. Right. Um, the kid who is growing up in a part of the country, in a town where there isn't a GSA in the school, where their parents are bullying them to, where they, they cannot come out, they cannot make it better for themselves, they cannot be the kid who forms the GSA. They right. just have to tough it out. I think the message we sent to a lot of kids that was unhelpful was coming out is the big, is the is the end of all your troubles. Oh, yeah. And coming out is, as we know... Just the beginning. The beginning of new troubles. Right. The beginning of new troubles. Better troubles, often troubles that can lead to... The ones we should have been having all along, Sex and fulfillment and partners. But you're going to get your heart stomped on. You're going to be betrayed. You know, and I was never Pollyanna. Jeffrey Dahmer, remember him? Mm -hmm. He ate my friend Tony. I wasn't one of those guys in the bars thinking, oh, because everybody here is gay, everybody's good, and on my side and my gay brothers. Yeah. Part of me was thinking, there could be a good, another gay cannibal in this room for me, and, and I can't right. be Yeah, I've been discriminated more in, against more in the gay community than I ever have in the straight community. Because like, you live because, in the gay community. Yeah, because that's where I live, and that's who's around me, and we're just still people. We're 10% of everybody. Right. Great guys, but also terrible guys. And and we we actually have a higher percentage of terrible. Yeah, we can't argue uh, that you know because of what we're put through by the culture, homophobia, um, and you know rejection and and the shit that floats around that we commit suicide at higher rates, we drink at higher rates, we abuse drugs, abuse sex. Um, that there's these pathologies that we tie to homophobia, and rightly so. Right. But then we can't turn around and say, but we're healthier. We have to understand that a lot of gay men are kind of walking wounded, have been really damaged. Right. And your trick as an out gay adult is to. Work on yourself to undo the damage and to make sure you're avoiding people who haven't done that work and are still limping around damaged and to not have them in your life. Yeah. And not move through life as an openly gay person thinking, all gay people are my brothers. 
all straight people don't like each other. All Jews I don't know. like each other. All <laughs> Catholics there, don't like no each other. Group. There That's is this the great sense. challenge yeah. to coming together as a community has been that we are as diverse a community as there is. Right. We are 10% of all of those groups. Right. And right. the people who really become ex-gays and become very bitter and lash out at the gay community, the people who had this irrational expectation of what it would be like to be out, that being out would be some sort of endless birthday party thrown for you by your mom. It. As yeah. opposed to, there's a space and an opportunity for you to gather some good people around you and create your own community in the gay community. But the gay community is not a bunch of people who love and support you and have your back. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And welcome back to The Dinner Party Show and our special edition of our Best of Interviews series called At the Table Part Two. Oh, thank God you didn't ask me. I couldn't have remembered. I'd forgotten. Did you what forget we were the it. title? I just went again. away. It went away. So that was our interview with Dan Savage, who was a very exciting guest as always. But we did not include the segment in which he made Eric Shaw Quinn oh, scream like God. a girl. Which you can yeah listen to on the internet. I'm not going go back down. That. Oh, I want to go back through it again. No, I yeah. Go to our show archive. You can download the whole interview. Um, all of our shows are available for free on our show archive or yeah, from and iTunes. I scream like a girl with a really deep. You, know, you scream like a lady. Whiskey Wee's voice. Oh! Huh? oh. <laughs> scream oh. like, be author. Oh, 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 oh. Arthur. Arthur. Arthur, don't shit in my mouth. Oh, <laughs> you, you did it. Stop it. <laughs> well, look, the thing that everybody forgets about Dan Savage is that he's primarily a sex advice columnist, so there's nothing he has not read oh, my God. in his letter bag. And he brought some of it onto our show, and if yeah. you want to hear but about the rest of it. then he found something that made me scream, and then he just We've got him on YouTube doing saying it. Saying it. We also have a YouTube channel. You can see his eyes devilishly slide in your direction uh-huh. when you make the sound. Yes. It totally great. got off. It was a riot. He was, was very great. funny. Very he was a great fun. guest. It was a lot of fun having him on. Absolutely. And we still have signed copies of his books that we've never used as giveaway prizes that we... Um... Did we actually... No, no, no. Let's not talk about that. Let's oh talk about God. something else. Oh, my God. I have to give that book to M. Ross Michaels. M. Ross Michaels, if you're listening, I'm going to include... It, this is Christopher's fault. I blame uh, Christopher uh, entirely. I took your book home before the Christmas break, and it's sitting on my desk with your name on a big notepad. So if, if it matters, M. Ross Michaels, you're in my home. Your presence is felt. It's progress. But it's not felt enough it's for me to remember the shelf here in the to studio send anymore. your fucking book to you, which I will do very soon. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll get on this. So if you're listening to the live debut of this episode and you want to come over and join us on Twitter, we are probably still live tweeting the Golden Globe Awards. And our Twitter account is at Ditter Party Show. I think this is the first thing we've done with our Twitter account since the Oscars last year. (laughs) Although it is an active account. And even if you're not listening live, you can always come and find us on Twitter at Dinner Party Show. Absolutely. We're routinely tweeting out uh, important links about the show, podcasts, once they're posted, Stitcher links, TuneIn links all those sorts of goodies. And a lot of those things will play directly in your mobile device if you're on Twitter and you want to hear the show and you want to listen on Stitcher. It will begin playing without you having to download a podcast. And it's it's an exciting new world. It feels like every day we're adding a new layer of technology we don't quite understand. Eventually, we won't even have to do the show at all. Absolutely. It'll just be handled by a series of androids. Amazon drones will do the show for us. They'll fly it into you live and personally at your home. Absolutely. So, do we really know what's happening on the show next week I see something in the notes that says untitled Jordan Ampersand oh my project God. Un- well as always you know with Jordan there's no penning him down about things like what he's actually planning to do which means he's just going to wing it and pull something out of his ass at the last minute you know I've been working on my Jordan Ampersand impersonation I think it's pretty good <laughs> do you want to try it out hi Chris? I'm Jordan Ampersand how is that 
Yeah, that seems a little more sophisticated than Jordan. Okay, seems I'll to keep be. working on it. All right, I don't good know. Luck it's with not, that. it's a very alien to my experience overall, so oh, it's hard. Well, yeah, there's nobody who sounds it's quite like Jordan. Such a festive little cock sleeve. Okay. Festive, <laughs> yes. That's what yes. What a lovely thing to say. <laughs> I hope your mother's still listening. God. Well, that did her in. <laughs> if the Dan Savage interview didn't do her oh in. Oh, my God. Your right? mother is a sophisticated lady, and we're going to get her on the show. We're going to make her a guest on the dinner party show. My mother's a very cosmopolitan woman. She She's is. She's lived all over the world. Woman. She has lived all over the world, which is why you were born in Germany and made partly with Nazi technology. <laughs> We have the technology. <laughs> You're Hellboy, isn't? Wasn't Hellboy brought forth out of the portal by the I Nazis? Think so. I think that's so. It was in that period, that time period. I don't know. We'll the get, Nazi we'll Hellboy get, period. We'll get more Del Toro <laughs> on to talk about it. We'll get him to be on the show. Absolutely. But yeah, yeah. That's why I have the sawed-off horns. Yeah, that is. That's what's under all that. That's what's under all that this luxurious hair. mane of lion that's hair. Right. Excellent. Well, you've been listening to At the Table 2, At the Table Reloaded, our second installment of our Best of Interviews special here at the Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Derek Shaw Quinn. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Any final thoughts, Eric? No, just thanks for listening. All right, that's a cheat. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. I've been to a marvelous party.